Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. This is Eric. I'm alone today because Xander is on hiatus, but reconsider, we'll power on. Xander will be back. I'm sorry for the delay. It's been a bit crazy, including me being sick. It somehow wasn't COVID. I don't know, but I got tested. I'm negative. I'm not going to die, but I'm back. And today I'm talking about party realignments. So in particular, you know, could the Republican and Democratic parties change radically? Could they change who their coalitions are, who their tents are? I'm getting that in a sec. First, coming soon is Intelligent Speech 2021. Those of you who attended 2020, it was online, but we loved it. We had a great time. And I will be at Intelligent Speech with the following talk. How does the liberal West escape extremism and polarization? And you can go to intelligencespeechconference.com right now. Uh, Early bird pricing is 20 bucks for the whole day. It's a whole day of amazing podcasters, you know, Agora folks that you love, like David Crowther, some new faces or voices. And you get an even bigger discount if you use the promo code reconsider. So go check out intelligencespeechconference.com. And on April 24th, I will see you there for my talk and a bunch of others that I'll be attending. So it seems like the Republicans and Democrats alike are at risk of tearing themselves apart. And I suspect if we, you know, if you listeners listen to or read a certain kind of media or other kind of media, it seems like the other party is at risk of tearing itself apart, but not our own. And this idea that these parties are at risk of tearing themselves apart can seem a little odd, given, for example, that in the 2020 election, there was such huge turnout on both sides. Right. And so you think normally like a very fractured set of parties, there would be low turnout, there'd be low enthusiasm. But of course, a big part of what's motivating, you know, what's motivating the vote in 2020 was fear of the other side. I think it was probably higher than it's ever been. And and of course, over the next years, unless something major changes, that fear is going to increase and turnout will stay high because the stakes will always seem super duper high. But given that very high turnout and that very high enthusiasm, why does it feel like the parties are possibly going to tear themselves apart? Well, if we look at the Republicans, you know, they've they've had an internal war since Trump showed up, right? You had the never Trumper Republicans and they haven't quite gone away. And as much as the Republican voter base is largely behind Trump, leadership within the Republican Party 
has always had at best a mixed opinion of the guy and at worst have been downright hostile to him. So one example of this is that during Trump's two impeachments, Republican members of the House and Senate voted to impeach and convict in both. And it's and in each of those cases, it was the first time any member of Congress had ever voted to impeach or convict their own sitting president, right? So both in Andrew Jackson's case and in Bill Clinton's case, it had only been the other party that had voted to impeach and convict. And in this time, we had people voting against their own president, their own party's president for the first time, which is, which is kind of crazy. Now, if, you're, if you tend to lean Democrat, you might say, you know, it's crazy not to. Um, but it is a big political move and it's a sign that, you know, there are a lot of Republicans that were willing to, you know, that are, that are willing to oppose this guy, even though he was very popular among Republican voters, you know, and we have all sorts of quotes from, you know, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and, um, Mitt Romney, you know, these more traditional conservatives, the kinds of guys who were around, you know, in the two thousands, um, and, and were more the face of the party then, uh, you know, that, that they really don't like Trump. And so there's a Trump part of the party and there's a not Trump part of the party and they don't get along, but they're trying to keep it together. And then among the Democrats, there's a slightly less overt war between your traditional Democrats, you know, your sort of Joe Biden's, Hillary Clinton's, Barack Obama's and progressives. And what's the war there? The war there is that um, there's this belief among progressives that you know, they represent the people. And this was like a big thing that went down in 2016. That was a big problem that it said, you know, that a lot of supporters of Bernie Sanders said the people want Bernie Sanders. Now, of course, Bernie Sanders was never all that popular. He didn't do that well in polls and he didn't do all that well in, um, in actual primary votes, you know, and he won some states, but he never got a big portion of the vote. But the sense that the people want progressivism, sort of contrary to evidence, has this very like tail wagging the dog sense going on. What's happening is progressives are throwing rocks within their own party and really fighting against this idea of, hey, look, we have to compromise. Like we have to get something that all Democrats can get on board with and go vote for it. They're saying, if I don't get what I want, we've got problems. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Twitter is a great example of this. Um, I remember recently seeing that she was frustrated both that Joe Biden didn't, you know, get the stimulus bill pushed through faster and also that he didn't hold the line on a whole bunch of issues, including, you know, adding the $15 minimum wage to the stimulus. And these are contradictory impulses, right? It's easy to throw rocks, but Joe Biden doesn't have the power to force people to vote a certain way. He has to negotiate and compromise and AOC and, and sort of like the Americans that are really excited about her both didn't want any compromise and also wanted speed. Now, that's very hard to obtain if you don't have force, which they don't, right? They're not able to force anyone to do anything. And so there's a sense that even though a, for example, you know, sub- substantial majority of Democrats, right, both the elected representatives and Democrats in polls want things to be a certain way, there's a sense from progressives that they're just wrong and either people should want what progressives want or, or somehow do want what progressives want and that because the rest of the Democrats aren't, aren't on board with what progressives want, there's a problem. And so that um, these are both, you know, both the Trump base and the progressive base are populist parts of these parties 
that are that are at substantial odds with the much more like conventional, you know, moderate's not quite the right word, but the like slow moving plotting, let's make a deal wings of or parts of those parties. And we've, of course, seen the like, hey, moderate, let's make a deal leaders in these parties going out of fashion for a while. It's now seems to be close to reaching a breaking point. You have to remember that back in the day, you know, Congress was, you know, a, a party was actually this like big tent of people who even in Congress didn't agree all the time and voted with the other party and voted their conscience. And that was OK. There were parts of being a Democrat or a Republican that were fundamental and there were parts that were not so fundamental. And, um, you know, they would tend to vote together on the fundamentals and tend not to vote together on the not fundamentals. And and then we entered this age where everything was a war and everything. So this is the wedged age, right? For those of you who read Wedge, we were talking about like the mid to late 2000s where everything was a war and the parties were super well aligned, right? If you remember that, if you read Wedge, you remember seeing that like graph of the votes in Congress splitting like cells, like mitosis, that you'd have party line votes. And so what it meant was like the parties at least seemed quite united. They could get a leader to say, this is how you're going to vote. And they vote that way. And we've actually now moved past that to this point where you don't have the parties voting together anymore. But it's not because it's a big tent that allows for a lot of disagreement that they're okay with. It's that there are these internal wars going on inside these parties, right? Trump is threatening to primary everyone who didn't support him in his impeachment. AOC has threatened multiple times to primary everyone who votes with Republicans on certain issues. So you have these you have these kind of like firebrand populist leaders who want to purge the parties of the people who don't agree with them and don't vote their way or don't think their way. And there are a lot of people that think this is a good idea. Right. And there may even be people listening to this podcast right now that say, well, that's a false equivalency. And I'm not talking about, you know, a moral equivalency between AOC and Trump, right? AOC clearly didn't incite an insurrection on the Capitol, but are both of them threatening to primary the people who don't agree with them? Heck yeah. And are there people who support them and say, well, that's actually a really good idea. The party is like old and and stuffy and curmudgeonly. It's out of touch with what the people want. Well, yeah, there are a lot of people who think that. And, but not a majority, um, even though it feels like a majority because we're so deep in our own bubbles that we're like, well, everyone I know agrees with me, or at least the ones that don't, they're crazy, right? So I've got crazy people who like, you know, don't want to get the freaking, you know, any freaking vaccines. And then I've got good progressives who agree with me, or I've got, you know, crazy people who are like communists that, that love, I don't know, China and Iran, and I've got good conservatives, right? And, but of course, like the picture is really much more nuanced. And every every party has always tried to hold together these tents, and it's getting harder than it's ever been before. One way of breaking this, one way of kind of breaking this out and measuring it a little bit is the Hidden Tribes study. Um, so it's not super scientific. It's not peer-reviewed journalism or journalism. It's not peer-reviewed academic literature, but it's actually, I think, pretty smart stuff. And what it identifies is that there are seven tribes in the United States, right? Now, there are not seven parties in the United States. There's seven tribes. And so those seven party or those seven tribes have to fit together into these parties somehow because the third parties are so small, they don't absorb any of these tribes. And what we see, if we break this down, is that each party like roughly aligns with a more conventional group of either liberals or conservatives and a more 
populist, aggressive group of liberals and conservatives that and the, that liberal uh, or that sorry, that aggressive populist group is a little bit new. It's not something that we really that was really on our radar, say, in like 2000 in Bush v. Gore. Right. And so what are these what are these seven tribes? There are those progressives. They're called progressive activists. They're eight percent of the population, deeply concerned with issues concerning equity, fairness, and they tend to be secular, cosmopolitan, engaged with social media. Traditional liberals, eleven percent of the population, tend to be cautious, rational, and idealistic. They value tolerance and compromise. The great place, great faith in institutions. Right. So you can see different kinds of Democrats in that group already. There's passive liberals, fifteen percent of the population. They tend to feel isolated from their communities. They're insecure in their beliefs and try to avoid political conversations. They have a fatalistic view of politics and feel that the circumstances of their lives are beyond their control. So these are the folks that are sort of saying, like, look, nothing, nothing can change. You know, they, they're often concerned about stuff like climate change, but they feel kind of doomer about it. Right. There's this big politically disengaged group, 26 percent of the population. So they're untrusting, suspicious about external threats can be conspiratorial-minded and pessimistic about progress. They tend to be patriotic yet detached from politics. Moderates, 15% of the population, they're engaged with their communities, well-informed, civic-minded. Their faith is often an important part of their lives. They shy away from extremism of any sort. Traditional conservatives, 19% of the population, so our second biggest group, they're religious, patriotic, highly moralistic. They believe deeply in personal responsibility and self-reliance. And then finally, devoted conservatives, 6% 6% of the population are deeply engaged with politics and hold strident, uncompromising views. They feel that America is embattled and they perceive themselves as the last defenders of traditional American values that are under threat. So those 8% and 6% groups, right, they sound very familiar and they're very active on social media. They're very loud. They often engage in violence, right? And I know everyone's like, my side doesn't. It's like, look, there was a capital insurrection. Um, those came from these like devoted conservatives in, as defined here, they that believe that America's embattled and that they're the last defenders of traditional values that are under threat, right? Those people launch the Capitol insurrection. And it's progressive activists that keep burning down Portland, right? As I'm talking today, there are like there are fires in Portland again because people are protesting something. Um, and I don't even know what anymore. Um and uh and so, you know, so they're getting like feisty and violent. But the parties need them. And that's the hard part is that remember we talked about in Wedge that parties need the most engaged people to, to vote, to campaign, and to donate money. And if they just rejected them, they would get swamped out by the other side that's embraced, you know, that, that is at least trying to find in some way to keep this wing together. That's old news. But how large and powerful these wings have become is new news. And there is a war within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party over what to do over like what the future of the party looks like. Um, those, and those wars are coming to a head. They used to be something that was done in back rooms. They used to be something that was like, you know, in, or, or in like, you know, in bars and in bowling alleys and in churches and living rooms. But now it's just open war within the parties as well. So we have more than two groups at war with each other. We have four groups at war. It's just two groups that, you know, when the other side is around, they'll, they'll, they'll close rank and throw rocks at each other. But when the other side goes away, they throw rocks at each other. And that stress on these two parties is potentially catastrophic for their existence. It doesn't, nec- it doesn't have to hold together. And so there could be what's called a party realignment. And a party realignment is a moment in which the group of voters um, and their like various geographies that conventionally vote for a party, in this case, Republicans or Democrats, 
it's no longer reliable. It changes dramatically. And we've seen this a couple times through history. We'll actually go through a few examples. But remember that, you know, parties are these coalitions and those coalitions often contain like weird contradictions, right? So if you look at Republicans, you have like very pro-business conservatives who believe in the free market, often want a lot of like immigration and H-1Bs because it's good for business. They want a lot of free trade and, and international trade because it's good for business. And then you have folks who are totally anti-immigration, don't like outsiders. They're, they're somewhat xenophobic and they don't want to trade. They want this kind of like America first, you know, buy American thing. And those are completely contradictory and they try to hold it together somehow. And then similarly among, you know, within the Democratic Party, you have these people who very much believe in institutions. They believe in free speech. They believe in due process. And that's very, very important to them. You know, then you have folks that actually don't believe that speech should necessarily be free anymore, that, you know, that we should curtail what people are allowed to say because what people say hurts people or it contributes to furthering racism or, or sexism or the patriarchy. You know, and you have folks that that actually want to instead of having a more liberal society where people are more allowed, like more free to do what they want. You have these more progressive folks who want authority figures to get involved or the mob to get involved in order to regulate people's behavior and what they say in order to create a more just society. Those two sides are very against each other. Similarly, again, like Obama wanted, you know, if we remember the 2016 election, Obama was trying to make the Trans-Pacific Partnership free trade deal happen um, as part of like a broader strategy for how to manage the Pacific. And it was Sanders and Trump who were against the TPP. And because Trump got elected, you know, and Clinton was for it, Bernie was against it. They disagreed fiercely about what to do. And that deep disagreement over something like trade was, you know, it was a big deal for the Democrats. Similarly, I mean, similarly race relations. You have progressives that actually believe that segregation is now a good thing. Right. And your conventional liberals are horrified by this. So these these, you know, deep disagreements within the parties, you might notice there's a little bit of similarity between some of what, you know, like Trumpists believe, like, for example, you know, we're anti free trade, but for different reasons than the Bernie Sanders types are anti free trade. That the uh, and it used to be that that a lot of Democrats were against a lot of immigration because it was bad for American labor, right? It, it was how corporations pushed down, um, you know, pushed down wages by bringing in excess labor for people who are willing to work for less, right? So it's just a way that corporations screw over the American worker. But now Democrats tend to be, but again, not all of them. So you have kind of that group and then you, and, and then you have this other group that are pro-immigration because it like, it feels progressive. It feels multicultural. And that's, that's a good thing. So you have deep disagreements within the parties, and you can even start to trace some places that different parts of the parties of, of like the Democrats will agree with one part of the Democrats will agree with one part of the Republicans on this issue versus that issue. And so the fact that these like coalitions are so diverse and internally contradictory, the reason we talk about this is that it's not necessarily the case that these parties have to be fixed, that they're going to endure the way that they are now they may change quite dramatically. Ultimately, the other reason that realignments are possible is because it's happened in the past. And what we've seen, well, actually, I'll talk through a few of these examples, but what we've seen is that these kind of inter these big tents that contain a lot of different points of view, 
there becomes this like very deep pressure that causes them to crack and for an open war to occur. And then you essentially have one group that like gets up and leaves because they're so dissatisfied with being part of the party. And what happens then is there's a land grab. And here's why. In our first past the post system, Duverge's law says that there will always like you'll always descend down into two parties. And it's because people only get to vote once. And so if there are three parties, if you have three parties, if two of them can form a coalition, they're going to win every every time. And so what happens is there's this there's this pressure to form into coalitions rather than be very separate um, or, or, you know, have separate parties that that are really principled. And because of that pressure, what happens is if you have one party split, well, the two parties that just emerged out of that, like, let's just say the Democrats split and the Republicans didn't. Which has happened before. The two the two parties that split, um, they're going to get hosed because the Republicans are going to have all the votes they used to have. You know, let's say nothing happened. There wasn't a realignment, right? They're going to get hosed. The Republicans would have all the votes they used to have. And then these two parties would split the votes that they used to have and just never get any meaningful representation. So what happens is that the like the kind of positioning again, think of this as a marketing game, the positioning that we used to have for, say, this old Democratic Party that built this particular coalition, well, it's not working anymore and they have to change something. They have to go after, you know, start marketing to a different group of people in order to get them to vote for them. Whereas the Republicans are also seeing this as an opportunity to, you know, try to scoop up some new voters because you've got this broken party and they would love to have a big majority. And that natural motion to try to like scoop up voters in this like chaotic system Right where there's not a lot of magnetism, there is a lot of disagreement. Party loyalty is going to be at its lowest because of the internal wars that have been going on. There's an opportunity to cause a realignment, and so that realignment means that the Republican Party and Democratic Party, or whatever parties emerge as the two parties, because it doesn't have to have the same name, they may look very different. They may believe different stuff. They may have a different platform, a different weird coalition, a different set of internal contradictions. Um, the geography may be radically different, right? California voted for Reagan twice, voted for Nixon twice, right? Now that's unthinkable, them voting for these kind of conservative Republicans because Reagan was conservative. And so you have these kind of like mini changes going on all the time, but there have been some major realignments that have occurred. And we'll just go through a couple examples through history. One of them is, is around 1824 and one of them is around 1948. So in 1824, um, what we had was uh, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists slash Democratic Republicans. So the Democratic Republicans were, um, they were like the party of Jefferson and the Federalists are the party of like Hamilton, right? Those of you who've seen Hamilton, you know exactly who we're talking about here. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And the last four elections through 1824, the Democratic Republicans won them all. And in fact, the four largest electoral vote winners in 1824, and this was the the election that re-elected John Quincy Adams, the four largest electoral vote share getters uh, were all Democratic Republicans. And what, what had happened was like the Federalists had been so beaten up that they became politically irrelevant, and anyone who was worth anything ended up joining the Democratic Republicans for political relevancy for a chance at winning. But what it meant was that this this tent grew so big that it became unwieldy, right? You had Democratic Republicans running against each other in the general election. You had four of them. And (coughs) what that meant was that by 1928, the next presidential election, the Democratic, sorry, 18 Democrats and Whigs were substantially different, both in geography and what they stood for than the old school Federalists and Democratic Republicans. And some of it was what the Federalists and Democratic Republicans had been fighting over had been settled, right? The Democratic Republican ideal up to a certain extent had been achieved. Um, and the, the Federalists had kind of put a cage around what the DRs could do and they did what they could. And you still had, so during this chaos, you still had these like small parties flying around. You had the anti-Masonic party or the free soil party. And um, leading up to the Civil War, it may surprise you, but the Whigs and the uh, Democrats were actually pretty multi-regional. It wasn't a North-South thing. What you actually had was um, because of all of the compromising that was going on, slavery was something that everyone was trying to keep on the back burner um, and not make the, you know, the major issue of national politics. Um, it would come up every now and then and you'd get a bunch of people from the North and from the South, like getting together to compromise, you know, y'all know Henry Clay. But what ended up happening was that at some point, of course, leading up to the Civil War, the slavery question became dominant. And this became a very regional um, question. And, and the multi-regionality of the Whigs was not going to last. So a quick quote from Wikipedia. Across the northern states, opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act gave rise to anti-Nebraska coalitions consisting of Democrats focused on this opposition, along with, quote, in Michigan, Wisconsin, these two coalitions labeled themselves as the Republican Party, but similar groups in other states initially took on different names. So this is how the Republicans formed. It was in it was when northerners, abolitionists said, we've had enough. 
And even though we disagree on a bunch of other stuff, we're going to unite around this issue, right? So this became a realignment that was driven by kind of the pressure of a single issue that instead of cracking the parties apart, although, well, it was both, right? It cracked the parties apart because you had Whigs that were fine with Kansas, Nebraska and Whigs that were opposed to it. But you also had agreement across these parties that were otherwise disagreeing with each other all the time. And it and that where they agreed with people in the other parties became more important than where they agreed with people in their current party. Historian Michael Holt adds a little bit to this. He says, quote, the debate over the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, which effectively repealed the Missouri Compromise by allowing slavery in territories north of the 3630 parallel, shook up traditional partisan alignments. Again, because the compromising that was going on had kept slavery to be something, you know, there was kind of a truce about the future of slavery. Um, and so people could be split into, they had the convenience of worrying about different issues, about business, about foreign policy, et cetera. But because of the Kansas Nebraska act, the stakes were so high regarding the future of slavery. Um, and it was of course, like, you know, it felt economically um, vital to the South and it was incredibly morally reprehensible to the North. Um, and so the parties started to seriously realign much more along the North and South. And this led to the rise of the Republican and Democratic Party. So it was really between 1824 and 1854, you had this long period of realignment. It was 30 years. And, um, but then the Republican and Democratic Party were sort of, as far as we can tell, here to stay. But by 1948, things had changed, right? So the Republicans were always pretty pro-business. The Democrats, you know, they actually ended up, the, they had their own kind of internal realignments about what they stood for, even after, you know, because in the Civil War, the, the Democrats, you know, there were Northern Democrats, there were War Democrats and Peace Democrats, um, but they were much more aligned with like these agrarian interests in the South. And of course, by the New Deal, the Democrats had become fairly progressive and the Republicans had become a little bit, you know, a little bit like pro-business. And I'm not going to recount like the entire story of kind of like post reconstruction and uh, Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Act and all that stuff. But what ended up happening is by 1948, the National Democratic Party was not catering to the like the pro segregationist views of Southern whites. Right. So Southern many Southern white voters wanted segregation. They, They didn't want an integrated society. Truman had sent the National Guard to enforce segregation in the South or uh, anti-desegregation in the South. Um, so you had a Democratic president that was going to the South and saying, look, we have to, you know, the, the National Guard, we're sending the military police actually to deal with this. And so a lot of Southern whites felt betrayed by the Democratic Party. But remember, the Republicans, well, they were the party of Lincoln. They were the party. They were, you know, they started as the radical Republicans. They were the abolitionists. So they weren't a place to go. So these Southern Democrats actually created their own party, um, known in, ta- in, in some elections as the Dixiecrats, um, in some elections as the American Independent Party. And they had leaders such as Strom Thurmond and Barry Goldwater. And you say, wait a minute, aren't those guys Republicans? They became Republicans. So this Southern Democrat splinter group, all it was was a spoiler party, right? Because they really didn't have a chance of actually electing um, a president as a whole. Now, they, they still got a somewhat meaningful number of votes in the North, but, um, but they never really stood a chance in winning the presidency. So all they did was beat up the Democrats. 
And there are actually times that the Democrats somehow still won, such as uh, Kennedy's election. So um, but they, uh, you know, between 48 and 72. So that's also a 24 year period. So the other one was 30 years. This was 24 years. The American independents, they took electoral votes. Right. So during presidential elections, um, this Dixiecrat slash American Independent Party ended up taking votes away from Democrats in the South. And so the Democrats are now playing at a severe disadvantage on electoral map. And that really hasn't happened since um, you haven't had a third party take a state since then. And there are reasons for that, which we'll talk about in a sec. But what it meant was like the Democrats were pretty hopeless if they didn't change their position. So they actually ended up going after the coastal states and the northern states. And for the Republicans, um, it, it was in particular uh, Nixon who had lost in uh, lost Kennedy just barely, uh, but then came back and wanted to wanted to win after Johnson. Um, he adopted the Southern strat or he he accelerated the Southern strategy. And the Southern strategy was an appeal to those it was when the Republicans reached out to those white voters in the South who felt like the Democratic Party had abandoned them. And so this kind of like this kind of two sided land grab where the Democrats went after where the Republicans were, were weakest and the Republicans went after where the Democrats had already lost, you know, lost a lot of voters to another party. Um, it caused this very rapid coalition. So one thing I like to do sometimes is starting in about like uh, 1900. Just go to Wikipedia and look at like U.S. presidential election 1900. Um, and then just like there's an arrow next to the date where you can just advance and see how the map changes. And it'll shock you sometimes to see how, you know, between in a four year period between 68 and 72, these states that were solidly blue became solidly red and just stayed that way. It's, it's nuts. Um, but that's how how powerful and sudden. Actually, sorry, they weren't solidly blue by 68. They were solidly blue in the 30s and 40s, and they were orange on Wikipedia in the 60s, voting for the American Independent Party, and then suddenly started voting Republican. It's amazing kind of how dramatic the change can be. So these realignments are possible, and the things that draw out realignments are disagreements within a party and then agreements with people in another party. And these, these can either happen by circumstance, such as with abolitionism and slavery in, in in the 1840s, or they can happen as part of a intentional strategy in order to you know win power that uh, was part of the that the Republican Southern strategy very much exemplified. So what you might be asking is, does it have to be a realignment? Do you have to have either parties change or have one of them like burn down? Could you have third parties in the United States? We've talked about this before. And the answer is generally no. Although I did mention that you know, look, in the 50s and 60s, there was a third party. Now, it didn't get any meaningful representation. It was just a spoiler. And that's ultimately why you can't have a resilient third party, a stable third party. So one could pop up, but it will be unstable and it will force a realignment because of Duverge's law, because the, the coalition that could like build the broadest group is going to win. It's going to lead to two parties um, who are playing on the margins. And one of the reasons that there's less pressure for a third party now is the primary system. So it used to be the case that the Republicans and Democrats, you know, they have a platform and they would put up people that like the Republican Party and Democratic Party bosses would pick who their presidential candidate was their uh, and their congressional candidates were. And so you got to choose between them. 
which means if you really didn't like either of them, you voted third party. Whereas now, because of the primaries, anyone can run and people in the party vote for them. So what happens is you get an opportunity to have a say in who's going to represent you as Republican or Democrat, which means that these Republicans and Democrats can now be pretty different, right? You can have, uh, you know, you can have your Bronx AOC and you can have your Missouri Democrat who like really dislike each other, right? But they're part of the same party, just as like Republicans, you know, you can have a uh, like a Ben Sasse or a Mitt Romney in Senate. I don't know why I'm just thinking about Senate, but I am. And you can have, you know, Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, right? In the same party as like Murkowski and Ernst and Collins. So third parties are ultimately going to be unlikely without a major reform. And the obvious reform that could bring about a more multi-party system to, to, to sort of like break up the pressure of these unwieldy coalitions and ease some of the fundamental like dissatisfaction that people have in their own parties, right? Feeling like they're not represented by their own parties would be ranked choice voting, right? So we talked about this before and we'll, I'll add another link uh, to what fair votes doing, but ultimately the, you know, the ranked choice voting system would one allow for third parties more easily because, you know, let's say I would vote Republican before I'd vote democratic, but I'd vote libertarian before I'd vote Republican. I can vote libertarian first and Republican second without risking electing a Democrat by mistake. So it changes the incentives for people so they're more likely to vote third party. And it also means that the coalition building actually then happens in in Congress, like you have with some parliamentary systems as opposed to within the party itself. And the other thing it does is it, well, it means that you can't just campaign on the other party sucks anymore, right? You actually have to campaign on here's why you should vote for me. So if we don't do anything, do I think, you know, do I think a party realignment is likely? I do. And, and it's a little bit of like wait and see because I think I've been, I've been predicting this for a long time, but you just kind of never know when it's going to happen, right? It's, it's, um, I think the pressures are there and like many things, you need like a trigger for it. And, you know, right now the Republicans decided they weren't going to have a full-blown civil war, right? They almost did. Um, but, you know, you had kind of uh, like Lindsey Graham trying to like make peace about Trump and stuff like that. And they decided to try to keep it cobbled together somehow. And um, the Democrats, after a lot of their rock throwing, you know, they managed to pass a stimulus bill that got some people what they wanted and some people not what they wanted. And maybe at the end of the day, they can make a lot of noise, but but get back together. Um, there's a great Atlantic article I linked to um, about the Democrats may or may not keep it together. And uh, so, you know, go to the show notes at reconsidermedia.com and take a look there. Um, it's a great article. And and ultimately, if you feel like your party is sort of like falling apart at the seams or tearing itself apart at the seams or that's changing radically and it doesn't feel like the old party anymore, well, you're probably right. That does seem to be what's going on. So just remember that things can change, right? Like history, you know, as we know from the past, heck, 10, 15 years is that things don't follow a straight line, right? So where you are today doesn't have that strong an indicator about where we'll be in a few years. So um, just be ready for the world to change around you. And my hope is that by being able to talk about this and, and learn a little bit of like, learn a little bit of the history and the, and the structure behind it, you can just have a little bit more peace about it. So I hope you enjoyed. 
Uh, looking forward to everyone's feedback, thoughts about what we should talk about next. Um, you can email me at eric at reconsidermedia.com. And until then, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.